If you would, look with me. The book of Exodus in chapter 4. The book of Exodus in chapter 4. Let me remind you that what we have in this passage is Moses, 80 years old, a shepherd, standing in the wilderness of Sinai. He's been caring for the sheep. He's upon this mountain, and there's a burning bush. And out of that bush, God Himself is speaking to this man. And what is God's message to the shepherd? Exodus 3, verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So this aging man is told that he is being sent by God to stand up to the most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh in Egypt, to lead the Israelites out of their slavery and into the promised land. How would you react if that were you and that calling came to you? What would your response have been had you been in the shoes of Moses? Moses' response was one of protest. Again and again, he seems to speak out of fear and unbelief. He keeps coming up with reasons why he should not do this. His heart is inclined to disobey God's calling. And he is rationalizing his disobedience. He's coming up with excuses to justify not obeying God. And yet, God is answering each one of Moses' protests one after another. God is dealing patiently and tenderly with Moses. God is speaking to assure Moses. God is speaking to encourage Moses. The first protest came in chapter 3, verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who am I? And God answered that protest. Then in chapter 3, verse 13, Moses did it again. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent to me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God graciously answered that question. And now as we come to chapter 4, we find the third time that Moses protests. And so let's read what Moses says and let's see how God responds in these first nine verses. Exodus 4, verses 1 through 9. Look with me. Let me remind you, this is the very Word of God. Then Moses answered, But behold, remember behold is just a way of saying look, but God, look. Right? You ever heard a child talk like that? God, look! That's what he's saying. Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground 
and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So, you see the protest that Moses makes. It's simply this. God, when I go to the people of Israel... And I start telling them this story about how you appeared to me in a burning bush and how you've appointed me to be their leader. They are not going to believe me. They're going to say, sure, Moses. Yeah, right. Remember, God has already told Moses that the elders of Israel will listen to him and believe him. Back in Exodus 3, verse 18, God told Moses that. But what Moses probably has in mind here is not so much the elders of Israel, though there may be some unbelief there, but I think he's thinking about the people of Israel as a whole. Will the Israelites really get behind him and follow him? Will they believe him? Remember, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, Moses had sought to become a leader of the Israelites. He had been part of the Egyptian ruling class. The other Hebrews were slaves. But he decided to identify with his people. And he likely assumed that once he moved from the Egyptian ruling class and identified himself with his people, he likely thought they would embrace him. That they would love having him as a leader. And yet that was not the response he got. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Remember that? So Moses was already an unwelcome leader. Because he had not lived under the same bondage as his fellow Israelites. And now he was doubly despised because of his murder of the Egyptian taskmaster and because that was known. And after all this, God is telling Moses to go back to Egypt. And Moses can't help but remember why he left to begin with. Surely these people are not going to follow him. And so how does God graciously respond To Moses' protest. He gives Moses three signs that he can perform before the Israelites as evidence that he speaks the truth. And this is huge. It shows us the primary purpose of signs in the Bible. It shows us on why, it shows us why on rare occasions God empowered certain men to be able to work miracles. What was the purpose of miracles? to give evidence that what they spoke was truly from God. In fact, what Moses is doing here, or will do, he is doing as a shadow of Christ himself. 
Christ would come to save God's people in a way far greater than Moses will save God's people. And just as Moses came speaking God's truth, but had to give evidence through signs, so Jesus came speaking God's truth and attested to that truth through signs. And so Moses is being empowered by God to perform miracles. And he is empowered not only to perform these miracles before his fellow Israelites, but also before others. Because even though in this passage God is telling him to do this before his fellow Israelites, we're going to see Moses perform these signs before the Egyptians and before Pharaoh himself. Now what we have here is something that appears only rarely in human history. At big moments, when God is doing something pivotal that is going to change the course of redemptive history, we see God rise, raise up men that He empowers to do these kinds of miracles. Moses is the first example we see in Scripture. Joshua is the second. After them, you have to go all the way to Elijah and Elisha. And then after them, you have to go all the way to the Lord Jesus and His apostles to see men who were truly miracle workers. And so miracle workers have not been common in history, but they come on the scene when God is doing something major. And they exist for one reason, to attest that what a person is speaking is truly from God. Now, what are we to make of these three signs? God could have chosen all sorts of things for Moses to do to show that he was speaking the truth. God could have chosen for Moses to make cows fly or for Moses to breathe fire like a dragon or or for Moses to make the sun turn purple. And so it's right to ask the question, why these signs? Why these particular miracles? Why did God choose to go about it in, in this way? And so this morning I want to talk about the first two signs, the sign of the staff and the sign of leprosy. And we're going to save the sign of the water turning to blood till later because we're going to study that as a whole sermon when we get to the first plague. So this morning, let's look at the first two signs and let's look first at the sign of the staff. The Lord says to Moses, what is in your hand? And Moses says, a staff. And I love this because Moses is here expressing his fear to God, his doubt to God. He's been kind of complaining, whining, unbelieving to God. And God responds by basically saying that he can take anything, anything at all, and use it to accomplish his purpose. He draws Moses' attention to the staff in his hand. Moses, do you think it's going to be hard for me to take care of you? Do you think it's going to be hard for me to accomplish what I intend to accomplish through you? I can use whatever you've got. What is that in your hand? Staff, I can use your staff, right? To accomplish what I intend to accomplish through you. This isn't hard for me, Moses. This is easy. Mount Hermon, we often need that same lesson. How quick we are to have small thoughts of God. How quick we are to fall into doubt and fear, forgetting that our God is God. We need to do what Psalm 46 says. Often, be still and remember. Be still and know that He is God. He can do anything. Of 
Nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is, is beyond his capability. Nothing is even difficult for God. If he can create the whole universe out of nothing by simply speaking, do we really think that there is anything in our lives, anything in our families, any issue in our church, any problem in our culture that God isn't strong enough to deal with? And so let us not fear. God tells Moses, see your staff in your hand? Throw it to the ground. And when Moses does, the staff becomes a snake. Now, we've heard this story before, so we expected that. Moses hadn't heard this story before. He was not expecting the staff to turn into a snake when it touched the ground. And he did what any reasonable person would do. We're told he ran. He runs from the snake. Moses was a smart man. He he knows what to do when there's a snake around you. He he, he ran. Snakes aren't fun. We're not told what kind of snake the staff became or whether it was a poisonous snake or not. Um, I think there's actually some good reason to think from some things we'll see later that it was probably what the Egyptians called a naja, which was a true cobra that lifts its head up and flaps out its neck as a warning signal when, when it's alarmed. And so I think this was probably an Egyptian cobra, not a simple garden snake. Um, there was good reason for this experienced shepherd to run from this snake. He, he was afraid of it. And then God gives Moses a command that really must have put his faith to the test, right? God says, put out your hand and catch it by the tail, Now, I think we can guess that Moses was not excited about this command. This was not something he was eager to obey. And added to this command was the fact that if you're going to have to pick up a snake, what's the absolute worst way to do it? By the tail. If you pick up a snake by the tail, its head is free to swing around and and to bite you. Everyone knows if you have to absolutely pick up a snake, you do it by the neck and you try and hold the the jaws shut. And yet God says to Moses, grab it by the tail. And so we're not told how long Moses had to get his courage up to do this, but we are told that he did it. And he had good reason to trust that God knew what he was doing. We need to remember God is speaking to him out of a burning bush that's not being consumed God just turned the staff into a serpent. So Moses has some reasons to trust. All right, God, you know what you're doing here. And so he grabs the snake, and sure enough, it turns right back into a staff. What is the significance of that sign? Why that sign? In ancient Egypt, staffs and rods were seen as extremely important. Uh, There were common staffs, like a common shepherd's staff that Moses has here. But there are also sacred rods and staffs that were devoted to magical purpose. And each one of these rods and staffs were tipped with the head of a god, and that staff would be called by that god's name. So, for example, in ancient Egypt, there was the rod of Num, and there was the rod of Amon-Ra. There was the rod of Horus and the rod of Hathor. And to show you how sacred these rods and staffs were, there were priests whose responsibility it was to care for the rod entrusted to him. And so the rod of Amon-Ra, for example, would be carried for and, and cared for, 
carried by and cared for a man who was entitled, his title was the priest of the rod. And that's what he was, was known as. On the day of coronation, when a man was about to be crowned Pharaoh and king of Egypt, a rod with a crook at the top was given into the hands of Pharaoh. And the giving of that rod was to signify the power of deity, the power of divinity being given to the Pharaoh. Once Pharaoh took in his hand that rod, he was no longer just a man in the eyes of the Egyptians. The Pharaoh became a god. Pharaoh was thought to be made divine by his staff. If you were to look at the pictures of the ancient pharaohs as we find them in sculptures, as we find them in reliefs on walls, you would see that they often are pictured with their staff in their hands and that that's true for every period of ancient Egypt. Even the gods are oftentimes pictured with their staffs. Well, in particular, there was an Egyptian god called Osiris. And the pharaoh's staff with the crook at the top was said to have the power and the authority of Osiris. And Osiris was the god of the afterlife and the god of the underworld, the god who held the fate of the dead in his hands. If what you desired most was a happy afterlife, Osiris was the god you wanted to please. And since Pharaoh carried the rod of Osiris... You get the idea. Your eternal happiness depended on your obedience to the Pharaoh. He held the staff of Osiris. On top of all this, the Egyptians wholeheartedly believed that the staff of Pharaoh and that the other, the other religious staffs of Egypt, they believed that these staffs had magical properties and that they could perform wonders. For example, one Pharaoh was said to have transformed wax figures of soldiers and ships into a real-life fleet and army by the power of his rod. We have several pictures from ancient Egypt of pharaohs turning their staffs into, wait for it, snakes. Several pictures from Egypt of pharaohs turning their rods into serpents by magic. So what was it about ancient Egypt and serpents and snakes? Uh, You're probably aware that ancient Egypt was home to snake charmers. Uh, The earliest example we have of snake charming isn't from India, like we might think. It's actually from ancient Egypt. You may already know that the cobra was a major symbol of Egyptian power and royalty. The headdress or the crown that was placed on the Pharaoh's head had a cobra's head right at the center of it. And so the symbol of the serpent, the symbol of the cobra, was on the Pharaoh's crown displaying that Pharaoh was to be feared. Now think about all this from what we know from the pages of the Bible. Who is symbolized as a serpent in the Bible? It is, of course, the devil. Indeed, the devil made his first appearance on earth as a serpent. And now, while these ancient pagan Egyptians are worshiping their own false gods, they're actually being deceived. They're under the captivity of Satan. It is no accident that God's people are in bondage in Egypt. 
And it is no accident that attempts have been made to kill the male children. We're going to be told in Deuteronomy that Egyptians worshipping these false deities, that they're actually worshipping demons, that they're under satanic power, and that it is Satan who is out to kill the promised Messiah. The one promised way back in Genesis 3.15 that this one would come who would crush Satan's head. Satan is using Egyptian pharaohs wearing his symbol on their heads to accomplish his purpose. We must realize, Mount Hermon, that what we're reading about in Exodus is first and foremost spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare, but it's being played out through human beings and human means. What we're going to see is not just God showing His power over Pharaoh, but God giving a defeat to the devil himself in these pages. But don't you love the irony of all of this? Moses' rod is a simple shepherd's rod. It's not a sacred rod. It's not one of those rods with the crook, like the one that rests in the hands of Pharaoh. But this simple wooden staff of Moses is going to become known from this day forward as the staff of God. And we're going to see it again and again and again in the pages of the Bible. Uh, This is what it will be called in verse 20 of this chapter, Exodus 4 verse 20. We're going to see this rod called the staff of God. And something plain and simple like this rod has suddenly been set apart by God for a great and powerful purpose. And with this very simple rod, Moses is going to confront Pharaoh and he's going to show that his God is the true God. Forget Osiris. It is Yahweh that holds the fate of people in his hands. Indeed, it is Yahweh that holds the fate of the Pharaoh in his hands. Uh, Do you see what this would have done for the Israelites who lived in the fear of Pharaoh? As Moses performed this sign for his own people, it would not only have attested to them that, God, that Moses is telling the truth, but that Yahweh, their God, really is greater than Pharaoh. That their God really is supreme. In a very real sense, this rod is a picture of Moses himself. Moses has no superpowers. Moses doesn't have superhuman strength. He doesn't have some magical ability to save God's people. But God is going to take this simple 80-year-old shepherd and He is going to work wonders through him that are going to humble the best of Pharaoh's men. Now, Herman, let us learn here that God has called us to amazing purposes. But He doesn't call us because of what is in us. Our power to live holy lives, our power to love people and to point them to Jesus, that power comes from Him. We, like Moses, are rods in the hands of God, and the power is not in us, it's in Him. This is why the Christian life is a life of faith. We abide in Christ, we rest in Christ, we trust in Christ, and as we do this, We draw the strength we need from Christ and from His love to be able to serve God and accomplish His purpose in our lives. How do you see yourself this morning? Do you see yourself as the mighty crook in Pharaoh's hand? Or do you see yourself as a simple shepherd's rod? In the hands of God, if you trust Him, 
much can be done that is wonderful through you. But don't look to yourself. Look to God. So we have the sign of the staff. But then second, we have the sign of leprosy. The sign of leprosy. God says to Moses, put your hand inside your cloak. And Moses does so. But when he pulls his hand out, he finds that it's leprous like snow. Right? We have that word behold again in verse 6. Right? Look. Right? It means something unexpected has happened. Something important needs to be paid attention to. In this verse, that indicates that Moses was certainly not expecting his hand to come out all white and diseased. And so certainly this took Moses aback. Right, God, what have you done to me? What have you done to my hand? And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. When this passage says that the hand of Moses was leprous, don't think of Hansen's disease. Remember, Hansen's disease is that kind of leprosy where there's an infection that so inflames your nerves that you begin to lose feeling in your extremities. And then over time, the the extremities of your body can begin to wither and fall off. If you've ever seen Ben-Hur and the leprosy that we see in that movie, Ben-Hur, that's Hansen's disease. That's probably not what's in view here. Um, The word leprosy in the Bible is very broad, and it covers a whole range of skin diseases. And Hansen's disease doesn't turn your body white. And so that's why we think this, this probably isn't Hansen's disease. This is another kind of skin disease. But whatever it was, it was clearly something that, that scared Moses. His hand was, was white. His hand was, was sick. It was diseased. And yet, just as quickly as God was able to give Moses the disease, he was able to heal Moses of the disease. What is the point of that sign? Why? Why that sign? Again, I think God chose this sign as an attack on the supposed power of Egypt, right? Egypt thinks it's super powerful with its, with its mighty rods and its trust in its deities. But also at this moment, Egypt is at its peak intellectually. Uh, under Pharaoh Thutmosis III, also called the Napoleon of Egypt, the Egyptian kingdom spread further out than at any other point in human history. If I'm right about Thutmosis III being Pharaoh, and I I do think I am, then this is the peak of Egyptian civilization. And Egypt was not just a great kingdom. It was the world's only superpower of the day. And in in Egypt was found the intellectuals of the ancient world. Egypt was the center of military might, but it was also the center of human achievement, of technology, and of medicine. In Egypt, religion and science were not two competing fields of study. Right? In our day, a lot of times it's religion versus science. Not so in ancient Egypt. They were one field. If you were sick and you wanted to be healed, you would go to a priest. He might fix you a concoction to drink. And if you read the ancient Egyptian concoctions, they sound like things you'd put in a witch's brew. Right? They're, they're really disgusting sounding. But the priest would fix you this weird concoction to drink. And then he might perform an elaborate dance around you, calling for the gods to heal you. And he would pronounce these incantations upon you. 
And yet, the Egyptians were also the leaders in their day of human surgery. Uh, They were also known for their famous skin creams that were said to have healing effects. And and still today, you can buy Egyptian magic all-purpose skin creams, uh, if that's something you're interested in. So here's the point. Part of the, the power of Egypt in the minds of the people was the power of the magicians to heal and to curse. The Egyptian magicians knew how to cure people and how to give disease. They knew how to heal and they knew how to afflict. And yet, they could do nothing compared to what God was able to do instantaneously with the hand of Moses. When Moses goes to his kinsmen and he performs this sign, here's what God is saying to them. You're fearing Pharaoh and his magicians because of what they can do to you. Look at my power. I can give disease and I can cure. Don't fear Pharaoh. Fear Yahweh. I am the true God. And to the Egyptians, this sign would say, the best of your magicians, the height of your scholarship, the best of your intellectuals, they do not compare with the power and the ability of the God of the Hebrews. Pharaoh, don't think your priests and magicians will save you. They cannot save you. If you refuse to listen to Moses and the God of Moses, you will not prevail. Mount Hermon, do you fear God? Do you live with a healthy, holy, reverent fear of Almighty God in your soul, knowing that it is He and He alone who holds your fate in His hands? Would you be willing to endure the loss of everything rather than risk committing one sin against Him? Do you hold God in such high regard that you would rather have every person on this planet against you than to have God against you? Search yourself. How highly do you regard your God? He is the sovereign potentate, the maker of all things. And at the end of the day, He is the only person who will ultimately decide whether you are cursed or blessed. God is worthy of your allegiance and your worship. He's worthy of your trust and obedience. He is good, but as C.S. Lewis reminded us, He is not safe. Do not fear anything above God. How can sinners like us Have peace with a holy God? Only through Jesus Christ. Jesus lived and died to bring us and this great God together in a relationship of eternal peace, love, and happiness. As Christians, we need to remember that God has the power to afflict us with disease and to relieve us from disease. Do you see how easy this is for him with Moses' hand? God does not do it lightly or recklessly, but he also does not do it with any difficulty whatsoever. The New Testament makes clear that sometimes God will purposefully afflict his own children with sickness as an act of discipline, as an act of trial for their good. When we're refusing to humble ourselves before God, 
When we're refusing to turn from our sins to God, God will often use sickness as a way of bringing us low and grabbing our attention. This doesn't mean that every sickness you have is a direct result of some sin in your life, but it does mean that when you find yourself afflicted with a sickness, you ought to examine your life and humble your heart and see if God is not teaching you something. We don't want to despise the discipline of the Lord. And when we are afflicted with sickness of some kind, or when those we love are afflicted with sickness of some kind, it is good and it is right for us to ask God for healing. Because healing is not difficult for God. He can heal any of us of anything in just a moment. Just as He did with the hand of Moses. God has not promised to always heal us. He's more concerned about the health of our souls than the health of our bodies. And if it's not good for our soul, for our body to be healed, He will not heal us. But part of humbling ourselves before God and trusting Him anew is throwing ourselves upon Him for His mercy and asking for His healing. Yes, go to the doctor. Yes, follow your prescriptions. These are mercies of God in your life. But at the end of the day, call on the Lord your God who governs every cell in your body and ask Him to make you whole. Friends, these signs were not only signs for the people of Israel and the ancient Egyptians. These are signs for us that our God is the highest God of all. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And so let us bow before Him. Let us give Him our love and allegiance. And let us live for the glory of His great name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.